Hello and welcome to Fade Out, the podcast that examines the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. For this episode, our subject is director Mike Nichols. Born in Germany in 1931, seven-year-old Michael Igor Peskowski was sent, along with his three-year-old brother Robert, to America to escape Hitler's takeover of Germany and live with their father, who had left the family before to build a new life in New York. Nichols' parents' marriage was an unhappy one, and to escape his daily life, he would go, alone, to the theater and to the movies, which he said later were transformative experiences. After college, he hosted a radio show, then later joined an improv acting group in Chicago called The Compass Players, which included a young writer and comedian named Elaine May. Nichols and May hit it off almost instantly, both professionally and personally. They formed a comedy duo performing improvised sketches based on audience suggestions and their own keen intellect. They became literally overnight sensations when they appeared on a live TV special, eventually leading to sold-out Broadway performances, more TV appearances, and record albums. After a few years, though, Nichols and May became creatively restless, and they parted ways in 1961, with the former finding his way to directing Neil Simon's new play, Barefoot in the Park. In 2003, Nichols would say of this moment, On the first day of rehearsal, I thought, well, look at this. Here it is what I was meant to do. I knew instantly that I was home. Park was a smash, which led to more theater directing, including Neil Simon's The Odd Couple, for which Nichols would win a Tony. A friendship with actor Richard Burton, who was appearing in a play next door to one of the ones Nichols was directing, led him to directing his first film, 1966's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, starring Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. That film was a massive critical and commercial hit, and Nichols followed it up with an even bigger success, The Graduate. Nichols went against all advice and cast then-unknown Dustin Hoffman and used Simon and Garfunkel's music on the soundtrack in a way no one had done before. The film became a cultural touchstone, becoming the highest grossing film of the year and won Nichols an Oscar for Best Directing. After this, things got a little harder. Nichols would move on to an adaptation of Joseph Heller's Catch-22, starring Alan Arkin and an all-star cast. Critics and audiences were less receptive as they were to Nichols' next few movies, 1971's Carnal Knowledge, 1973's Day of the Dolphin, and 1975's The Fortune, starring Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson. When production on Nichols' next film, Neil Simon's Bogart Slept Here, starring, of all people, Robert De Niro in his first film after Taxi Driver, collapsed, causing the entire movie to be shut down and never returned to, Mike Nichols stepped away from directing movies for eight years. He would continue to work in theater, finally returning to film with 1983's Silkwood, starring Meryl Streep. For the next 25 years, Nichols would toggle between theater and the movies helming films like Postcards from the Edge, again with Streep, Working Girl, and The Birdcage. Producer and star Tom Hanks brought Nichols on to direct what would be his final film, 2007's Charlie Wilson's War. Joining me to discuss Charlie Wilson's War in the career of Mike Nichols is a fellow renowned director, writer, actress, and teacher, Joan Darling. Hi, Joan. Hi there. Thank you so much for being here. This is a real honor. Yeah, I'm delighted. Thank you. And also, we're uh, we're talking about one of my favorite people, favorite well, directors, favorite artists. I am dying to find out why you chose Mike Nichols, because it was, you were on my show MASHcast last year. We did a little 10-minute segment yeah. about uh, a marvelous episode of that show called The Nurses that you directed. And I had such fun talking to you. It was just such an honor to get to chat with you about that episode that I, for the last year, I've been like, how, how do I get Joan back on another one of my shows? I really want to talk to her again. So I contrived this thing of like, well, okay, 
Jones a director. She's a writer. She's done all these amazing things. Maybe Fade Out would be something she'd be interested in. Luckily, you were, and you picked Mike Nichols. So, so let's start right there. Why Mike Nichols? Why of all the people you could have picked, why him? Well, I was so hard. Uh, for me, Mike was the consummate film director, along with the consummate uh, play director. <clears throat> I'd known Mike socially uh, because of the improvisational theater, which is where I started. And the first person who put Mike and Elaine together was a man named Ted Flicker in St. Louis, which is where they became a team. Mm -hmm. So I knew about Mike. And then when Ted came to New York, actually, he brought Mike and Elaine to New York uh, and the money fell through uh, for them to star. And finally, he got them uh, up at the Cherry Lane Theater. And then they were a huge success. In the meantime, Ted Flicker wanted to do another improvisational theater. And uh, my girlfriend who knew Ted said, if you ever do improv theater, you got to contact Joan Darling. So there was that connection of in, in New York, we were all hanging around uh, and there was, there was uh, second city and the premise, which is the one that I was in. So I was already in the family with Mike. We had many, many mutual friends, et cetera, but I, I loved Mike's intellect. I loved his artistry. Uh, when I think about uh, reading things that he said and things that we talked about, Mike Mike talked about Silkwood. Now, I have a whole bunch, because I teach, I have a whole bunch of little handouts that I give. And one of my handouts for teaching is uh, for directors and actors called Ask Yourself. And the first question on it is, what is it you would like the audience to understand or experience from watching this piece of work? Uh, and I, uh, I, that's my touchstone whenever I work. What is it that I want, my heart wants the audience to get? And I heard now Mike and I, although we never, we sat down and talked a little bit, but we were so similar in our understanding of what art was, in our understanding of the adventure of it, of jumping off the cliff and not knowing what's going to happen next, <laughs> that it was, it was really uncanny. And I'll get, sort of further on when I get into it. But uh, when I read descriptions of Mike directing, I would say, oh, you know, well, no wonder, no wonder we like each other. <laughs> and he was always fascinated with teaching. And um, uh, we had a long talk about teaching, which I thought he would be a wonderful teacher. And he eventually opened a studio in New York. I was hoping that we would get to be able to teach together for a week or two, but our timing never worked out. But anyway, what he said about Silkwood was sort of the essence of of having that focus on a film. Uh, when somebody asked him uh, what what was it he wanted Silkwood to be about, and what he said so surprised me, but was so dead on. What he said was, "This is a story of a woman waking up," hmm. and I went, "Oh my God!" With all of the understanding of that film of corporate America, etc. But when he that's the kind of thing that I was always looking for. And Mike would always come whenever we talked or I heard him talk about something, I would go, yes. And we both, we both knew that we, we came about it in a different way, but I read a description of Mike, uh, directing and it was so identical to what I was doing. We went about it different ways. Um, I was always trying to help the actor to find the experiences from their own life that informed 
the whatever the material of the play was. And I had ways of doing it. Well, Mike did the same thing. And his way of doing it was a little bit different. He would sit down with the actor and start talking about the script. That's what I always do. And uh, he would start out by saying, you know, this scene reminds me of something. And he talked about something in his own life. And then, as I'm fond of saying, you don't, as a director, you only need to say three or four sentences and the actor will interrupt you. <laughs> and the actor will interrupt you and say, well, in my life, the thing that, and now you've already got the actor working into finding out what, what it's, what the thing is about. And when I read that about Mike, after I already knew him, talked on the phone with him, always waved hello at the Carlisle Hotel, you know, <laughs> and I would just go to one picture after another of Mike's and be flabbergasted at how they were always truthful. They always made a, a, an adult point, like a woman waking up. Because that, now, then also, I knew what he was doing, which is he could wake America up by taking that journey with her in Silkwood. Mm-hmm. America would wake up to what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I mean, it was just that kind of stuff from him just made my mouth water. We were, we, we worked, he had seen me improvise, and of course, I'd seen him improvise. And I have a kind of, when I'm acting or, you know, whatever it is I'm doing, actually, I'm a great one for stepping into the unknown and trusting that something will happen, that if I hang out there, something fabulous is going to happen. And Mike was like that, as, of course, was Elaine. And so there was, a, there was if, if I could grow up, you say to me, who do you want to grow up and be? I would like to grow up and be Mike Nichols. <laughs> when you first suggested him as the subject, uh, I mean, first of all, it's a great, it's a great pick because he's you know one of the premier directors in Hollywood for you know good the last half of the 20th century and the beginning part of the 21st. But I was intimidated because uh, first of all, I mean obviously he spent half his career directing theater, and uh, you know that part I can't speak to because I never got to see anything that he directed. So we're kind of, I'm like okay, so we're just going to be talking about the movies at least from my right. perspective. But I you know I knew that he didn't he didn't direct a ton of movies, but he directed enough that I was like. Man, I'm really gonna have to do a lot of work to to kind of catch up on all these films that I haven't seen. And so I go yeah. his, I go to his IMDb profile, and he's directed 22 films. I'm like, okay. Yeah. And I look through, and I realized I had already seen 18 of them. Really? And I was like, wow, I didn't realize that. And that to me said something about the preeminence of him as a director of his subject matter and his career. That as a kid, as a teenager, like I saw Heartburn. You know what I mean? Like, why would a 14-year-old be interested in, in Heartburn starring Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson? Right. And, you know, but yet there was something about his films that were so in the forefront of the culture when he did them that oh. it's like you ended up seeing them because they were just part of the culture. So right. it was kind of fun that I was like, oh, there's only a couple that I have to catch up on, you know, and that's, yeah. that's something about just how big he was at the time. Oh, he was, well, you know, the films, the films that I think of, I, I love them all, but, um, even the failures, I know, and because our brains are, I, I, I don't want to flatter myself, but I think the way he thinks, not as great, but I think the way, <laughs> <clears throat> and, uh, when I saw Primary Colors, for instance, mm-hmm. is really a masterpiece. And uh, and I know exactly what he was heading toward, what his ask himself was, which is, 
what are the qualities that that have to come together to make a person qualified to be the president of the United States. And the whole movie is about that, about the young uh, campaign workers desire to figure out, is this a good guy or is he just an Arkansas horn dog? And, and, <laughs> um, and, and I just, I love that movie. I, I, as a matter of fact, I wrote him a fan letter on that movie. My husband and I, during the Academy Awards season, when Academy Award night, we always go out to the movies because nobody's going to be there. And we saw <laughs> that particular movie uh, on, on one of those nights, and I wrote Mike a letter about it, and I, I oh, I should have thought to see if I could find it. Uh, it's a, I got a let, long letter back from him, and it was wow. just us talking about about the, about the Clinton and what an uh, incredible mixed bag he was, and and I use I use that to teach uh, that film to teach uh, the difference between what's an important scene and what's a dramatic scene. And uh, do you know the movie? Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. Well, I, my favorite thing when I'm teaching is to say, okay, what's the most dramatic scene in Primary Colors, and what's the most important? And everybody usually gets the most dramatic, which is when they come and tell the Clinton couple that uh, that the woman has killed herself, that mm. had been their devotee. That definitely is the most dramatic. But the most important scene in that movie, and it makes my mouth water because of how brilliant it is, it's the end of a long campaign day. The young campaign worker, they're all in a hotel room on the second floor. All these details are incredibly important. In the hotel in the second room, and the the kid is standing in the foreground. In the background is one of those trestle tables covered with sandwiches and drinks, and the whole rest of the gang are celebrating the end of the workday. And our hero is standing at the other end of the room with the space between him and everybody else, looking out a window. And he's looking out a window across a parking lot, and it's raining. Every time I talk about this, I start to cry. <laughs> and it's raining. And across the other side of the parking lot is a Krispy Kreme donut shop. And the Krispy Kreme donut shop is completely empty, except for the man behind the counter and for the Clinton character. And the Clinton character is sitting, talking with this man behind the counter with nobody there. No press, nobody in sight just talking and talking and talking. And in that moment, the the young campaign worker realizes that whatever his faults are, this is a man who really cares about people, hmm. which, of course, was a perfect expression of what Primary Colors' book was about, was, is this man worthy of being president? And it is done with such delicate artistry, no, nothing big, and it it's hits anybody who watches it, hits it whether they know, it hits them whether they know it or not. It's like alchemy. They get that feeling. And, and of course, when I'm teaching, I say, and that, of course, is the scene that the producer will come in and say, we're behind, let's cut that scene. Right. <laughs> right. You know, and if it's, oh, and if it's, see, why does it have to be raining? You know. Right. Right. That costs <laughs> extra. Why do we got to do it that way? Right. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So there, there was that kind of delicacy to his work that spoke to what I feel is some of the delicacy in my work. Mm. And, uh, you know, we, we talked about, um, and also he, he trusted actors the way I, I do. 
I probably trusted them even more than he did uh, because I, I had, he was a very good actor, uh, but he, that wasn't what he, he did that very rarely. He was a very good actor. But the, the other thing about it is from the people I know who worked with him, uh, he was very playful on the set. And I'm totally a goofball. I mean, you walk onto my set and it looks like a children's party. <laughs> when I have kids in a, in a movie, I buy the crew and the kids water pistols so that while they're doing setups, they can shoot each other and carry on. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a very unsolemn filmmaker. Um, I think Mike was probably a little more solemn than I am. And I've, I've watched him on the set of The Graduate. But I watched, and I knew Dusty very, very well. Uh, and when, when it was just brilliant, I knew it was brilliant casting. And I was watching them do the scene where Dusty is in the hotel room with Anne. Uh, uh, what's her name? Bancroft. Bancroft. Yeah. All of a sudden, they're having this conversation. All of a sudden, as if he doesn't know what's happening, Dusty's hand goes out onto her breast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know from working with Michael, from working with Dusty, and working with myself, nobody directed that. What Mike did was he made Dusty feel like anything that happened to him in a scene, he would be glad to see, whether he used it or not. And when you get that attitude out toward your performers, that's when you get the moments that just stop you dead, that just take your breath away. Scorsese can do it. Occasionally, um, what's his name who did Godfather does oh, it. Coppola. Coppola does it. Where they allow the, the, they, and this isn't, all of this is hindsight. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I didn't sit down and say, well, this is how I'm going to be a director and mm-hmm. let's see what I do and what it's like. It has to do with a connection, I think, to deeply loving stories and deeply loving communicating something about the universe or life or how to be from to other human beings. And even films that didn't work. Oh, the second, second World War one. Um, Catch-22. Yeah. Catch-22 didn't work because Mike had tried one thing to create the sense that the world was mad which is very well crafted in the book. But because he was trying to tell a story inside a crazy world, I'm only guessing at this, he never was able to tie the nutsiness down to everyday life. So it looks like a bunch of sort of silly sketches. And But I feel like he was right on the edge with that. You know, if it had been like a play or it, if it wasn't so expensive and it wasn't so that it would have, it would have, he would have found it. Oh, and incidentally, I know Alan Arkin very well. Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah, I was talking to Alan um, uh, when Alan was in the middle of shooting it. Uh, I, I happened to be talking to him on the phone, and he was on a big, long break they took during making of that movie, where I'm sure Mike was home, you know, wishing he had hair that he could tear out of his head, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to figure out what the hell was going to make this damn thing work. And, and, uh, uh, I was talking to Alan. I said, what have you been doing? He said, well, he said, we're still shooting. Um, I've lost the name of it again. Catch 22. Still, he says, I'm still shooting Catch 22. He said, it's like seven months, Joan. He said, I'm not the same human being. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it was, you know, you were talking about um, Harper. Uh, here's a quiz question for you. 
Do you remember the group therapy scene? Yes. Do you know who the robber is that comes in and robs them all? No, no. Kevin Spacey. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That was another thing is Mike Mike knew talent. He knew talent. He respected it. He rejoiced in it. Um, I don't, I never met anybody who worked with Mike who didn't have a wonderful time working with him. Well, that, okay. So that, that leads perfect because there's a wonderful quote about you that I wanted to read to everyone because again, I'll, I'll, you know, you may don't want to wax your own car. I'll wax your car here on the show, <laughs> but it ties in, it ties into something that I read in the Mike Nichols biography by Mark Harris, which I think inarguably is the final word on, on, on him. Yeah. I mean, it's like any discussion of Mike Nichols has to incorporate Mark Harris's, you know, towering 600 page book on, on the yeah. subject. But anyway, I found this marvelous quote about you and it's from, from Daniel Kwan, the Daniels, oh, from yeah. the Daniels from everything everywhere all at once. And so this is what he said about you. He says the finished film, of course, talking about everything everywhere is a testament to what veteran director actor Joan Darling taught them at a Sundance director's lab. Quote, you're not a general, you're a party host, inviting every cast and crew member on set to bring the best version of themselves to the party, Kwan says. It's such a profound, beautiful, simple idea we brought to this movie. He pauses. Still, hosting a party is stressful. <laughs> so it's a marvelous quote. And the reason I bring it up, other than just to, to say this nice thing about you on air, is there's a great anecdote from Mark Harris's book where Nichols is directing, I think it's The Graduate, and he was admitting that he had not been on his best behavior right. at that point. And they're shooting something, and he catches the cinematographer, I think it's uh, Bruce Surtees, catching the eye of another crew member, and the crew member looked like like he was stressed, and the guy goes, don't worry, it's almost over. <laughs> And Nichols was felt so bad that like, oh, my God, is this what I'm doing to the crew that these people are just dying to get off of my set? And he tried to make it different after that. And I thought that's really interesting that here's this quote from you talking about that you want to have this convivial kind of party atmosphere to inspire people to do their best work. And in the beginning, he didn't really know how to do that. You know, I mean, he's making things kind of a miserable shoot. And of course. Nobody wants that. You know, what a miserable experience. Well, he was, you know, one of his, I'm guessing at this, knowing him, if he if he had a problem, it was that he was the smartest person in the room. <laughs> Even with Elaine, no sludge. Right, right. <laughs> but, and Mike was also incredibly educated by, you know, on his own. He, knew, mm-hmm. he, read, he read everything and he was... He just was, I, I don't know how to say it. He was, he was the kind of artist that I want to be. I want to be somebody who, but I, I, I did not know that about uh, there being times when he was difficult for the people that he was working with because I never, I never saw that or, or even heard about it. But, but yeah, I'm glad he felt bad about it. And I think it's, but he was more, I think he was a more, more of his life was, painful because of his childhood and all of that stuff mine wasn't the best childhood but it was if you're going to have a bad childhood mine was a childhood of neglect so people like me either get very uh competent lazy on the one hand looking for somebody to, to go get the milk and not have to get out of the chair of course that's part of being a jewish princess too you know which my mother taught me 
My mother talked while we're talking. If you want to be a Jewish princess, this is the one sentence you need to learn. Honey, why you're up? (laughs) (laughs) And and you learn to sit and wait 20 minutes and be thirsty. And then the minute somebody moves, honey, why you're up? (laughs) And I think in, in Mike and Elaine's relationship, Elaine, who I know quite well too, who is just mind-bogglingly smart and really fabulous. I think Elaine was the freer one internally than Mike. And I think Mike learned a lot from Elaine about swinging like a musician when you're working. I, you know, I went back uh, in research for this show to go back and I watched some of YouTube videos of him and May performing. Yeah. And again, I I'm, I grew up thinking of Mike Nichols as this, you know, incredibly you know, exalted figure. I mean, he's in, you know, he's an EGOT winner. He's he's got a Tony and a Grammy and an Oscar and an Emmy. And, but to see him at, first of all, as a kid, look so youthful, but yeah. playing and being so goofy with Elaine May was really like, wow, that's the same guy. You know, just sort of like, I'm thinking of him winning Oscars and dealing with Meryl Streep and directing Angels in America and doing, you know, just constantly dealing with the top level people in his given profession and then him and Elaine being these kind of silly kids with they're blowing the smoke and they're kissing and then they blow the smoke out of the side of their face. I mean, it, it really was like revelatory to see him in that context because that was something I grew up with. See, and I think that's an incredibly insightful vision because I think the people who are really able to be creative, no matter what their demeanor is on the outside are the people who, are still children inside, who are still looking for a good time, who are still willing to hear goofy things. Well, like uh, Dusty would make little sounds when he was upset. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. And Mike said to him at one point, use it, and do, it in the, do it in the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> looking for the goodies, looking for the fun. And I think, think as I say, I think Mike was a more somber, well, that's not quite the word, more of a serious person than I am. However, I knew I could go toe-to-toe with him on anything. You know, I mean, we get that, that, that even being awestruck by him, we we never had a lot of contact, but I always felt like he was a, a real friend, and I know he felt that way about me from things he said to other people. I would have loved to have worked for him. I would have, I would love to have acted for him. I know that I would have delighted his soul because I don't think he's worked with anybody outside of Elaine who is as daring about jumping off a building, you know, and on the way down doing this, you know. <laughs> That's how Bill Ball, who, uh, who was a, a director who founded ACT in San Francisco, and Bill directed me in a uh, uh, episode of the defenders years ago and that's what bill said to me he said he loved directing me he said because i'll go up you'll do anything he said i'll come up to you and say why don't you jump off the building and you always say and on the way down can i (laughs) do you you feel as though uh over the course of watching his films that like it's when we're talking about directors it's so much easier to kind of like get a handle on someone who has a really distinct visual style because i think it's just easier you know to be like oh well this person has these shots and or subject matter you know like oh that's always about this thing and that therefore that 
person, you know, it's easier to look at their body of work. But Nichols's body of work is really just the focus is the characters. I mean, that sounds obvious. Obviously, it's a it's a story. It should be about the characters. But like the couple of movies of his where they venture a little further out into kind of like thriller territory. That's when, at least in my opinion, like they don't work as well because then he's got to deal with the mechanics of the plot as opposed to just characters interrelating like day in the dolphin or wolf, like where it's like, this is not, he's not, you could tell he's not super comfortable there. Now day of the dolphin was like a giant flop. And I watched it for the first time. I really enjoyed it. I actually think it's a really fun, bizarro movie. But when you look at like, it is kind of hard to believe that the same guy directed Virginia Wolf and the graduate. Never the, not even talking about back to back, but those two, the, the approaches, the look, they just look like the work of two completely different people. Yeah. And I, and that's a, I, I, uh, Mike, I'm the same way that Mike is. Mike's, Mike doesn't have a visual style that's recognizable. Mike's visual style comes strictly from his inner sense of the particular story he's telling. The colors are different. Everything is different. Oh, one of my favorite things, the one, when I think about him that just makes me grin, makes me want to go find him wherever he is and say, you son of a gun, how did you do that? You realize that in Postcards from the Edge, he bets the entire movie on that song. If that song at the end of Postcards, where mm-hmm. she does, finally sings, you've got, you've got no ending to that movie. And he, and that he, he happily bet the whole movie on that song. And of course, the, the, the staging of it is there are little pieces from other films way back. Like when, when you cut to the beginning of that scene, the first thing you see is the guys closing that giant door to the studio. Mm-hmm. That's you know, like, like a movie like from the Citizen Kane era. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are pieces of things and the, and the actual Citizen Kane shot where you go, she goes, the camera pans up past the stagehand sitting and listening up to her mother on the top tier watching. Oh my scene. God. I never even thought of that. Yes. That's, that's uh, uh, Citizen Kane. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. It's never occurred to me before, but that's exactly what it is. Yes. I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but Meryl Streep wanted to play that part. And, uh, my, this may not be true at all, but it's what I heard more than once. And Mike said, well, you know, I got to have a singer for this. So she went and took singing lessons and then went and said, I have to play this part. And she sings my, both my husbands, not, they don't, not, not currently, they don't run concurrently. They run consecutively. Both of my husbands were very, very good musicians. And, um, her singing, her style of the country style, and her singing is absolutely spectacular, absolutely. Uh, but to but to bet a whole movie like that on 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 a song, because otherwise it would end with her leaving the hospital with her mother and them driving away, would be you know be another movie. <laughs> I, one of the things I you know when I was reading uh, Mark again Mark Harris's book and something I did not know about. Um, was the, I mean, obviously his very hard scrabble beginnings, you know, coming over, oh. being sent on a boat, you know, imagine in this day and age where we think of kids having to be tethered to phones, we have to know where they all are 24 seven, putting a seven year old and a three year old on a boat 
from Germany to America and just hoping, you know, hope they get there and you'll find your father when you get there. I mean, just that is unbelievable. And then the whole thing about something I didn't know that he was, he was bald. He was completely hairless because of this reaction he had to a, to a vaccine and allergic reaction. And he had to wear wigs his whole life. I never knew any of that. And I mean, that was something that, you know, was kind of a closely guarded secret, but I mean, talk about when you're a kid, the last thing you want is to stick out. And this poor kid is, has to wear, has to put glue on and all this. I mean, just absolutely horrendous, but like, this is a guy who suffered from depression, great long bouts of really deep level depression of feeling no, I have no self-worth. I don't know what I'm doing. And yet, he heads into a career. First of all, he goes for a career on the stage, which again, you would think it's the last thing you would do if you have any feelings of insecurity is, right. you know, I'm going to now go on stage and have people judge me. But then in his early days, he, when he starts directing films and he, when he directs the first play with Neil Simon and he does Bear from the Park and it's a big hit, but then he does, he moves on to films and he seems to have this unbelievable confidence. Right out of the gate. First of all, to direct your first film with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor right there is like, oh, my God, could you take on a bigger task for yourself <laughs> as a first film is to direct these two? And it's Liz Taylor, you know, trying to kind of like brand herself as an, there's this great observation where he says, you know, Burton and Taylor were getting back together and they wanted what the other one had. Right. Taylor wanted to be think thought of as a real actress. And was a great star, but wanted to be thought of as a great actor. And Burton was a great actor and kind of wanted to be a star. <laughs> so they were, you know, they were at these cross purposes. And there's this great detail where they talk about that he realizes that the film's got to be shot in black and white. Wolf has got to be shot in black and white because the makeup on Elizabeth Taylor wouldn't look right in color. Right. And Jack Warner, who's still running the studio, is like, no, it's got to be in color. And he insists. And Nichols says to him, well, if you're insisting, I'm going to leave to go back to New York. Good luck with your movie. I mean, that takes some serious guts to be on the line for your first film and then tell Jack Warner, all right, I'll just leave then if you won't let me shoot it in black and white. I'm like, where do you get that level of confidence at that age to what pull I, that kind of move? What I think that I totally understand that. And that's probably why I, I have so much affection and admiration is what I say at Sundance is the, your ethics is to your story. That's what you owe everything to. And I'm sure it wasn't hard for Mike to say that no to that. I wouldn't have had any trouble saying no to that under the same circumstances because that would be like saying, um, why don't you make chocolate pudding? Uh, here's some sand and, uh, you know, and a lump of butter. <laughs> if you can't make chocolate pudding out of sand and a lump of butter, you're an idiot to try. <laughs> and I know, I would guess too, that, and see, I don't think it was hard for Mike to say no, even if it meant that he wasn't going to do the job, if it came from such an organic place that to say, to say yes to it would, it, it would be like, you know, you set out to, to build a swimming pool and somebody says, let's make it a skyscraper. And you say, okay, well, you get it all built. You don't have a swimming mm. pool. No matter what you do, you don't have a swimming pool. And, and Mike wasn't just working. He, t- 
He, nor did I to take jobs just to have a job. Mm. There had to be something in it that I loved and wanted to uh, see expressed. You know, that, uh, and I don't even think I listened to Mike. That's why I was so impressed when he talked about Silkwood, because mm-hmm. I would have, I could have come up with a lot of reasons why I would have wanted to do that film and what I would have made it about. Mm-hmm. But I came up with the one, it's like mine would have been to let the world see how corrupt American business is. That might have been what I chose. But by bringing it down to the personal, he made it, you know, her her awakening, he accomplished the same thing as mine would have, plus one, plus one, plus what it's like to awaken to what the world is like. That's another whole big story on top of the other story. Mm -hmm. And and people like Mike and I, and I'm trying to think who else is like that, uh, some like other actors I know, Gene Ackman, for instance, Mm -hmm. fabulous actor. And we're in our first acting class together. And wow. There, there are certain things that you just won't do because the work for people like us is not what we do to occupy ourselves. It, it is ourselves. So I remember when I was fighting with Paramount about my, um, my feature film, uh, I was talking to Spielberg about it and about the terrible cuts they were making and I didn't have enough power to stop it. And he even stepped in and got and saved a whole little segment of the movie by calling. Oh my goodness! Saying, wow! What are you doing to tell? Don't do that. Um, but it's like it's like having somebody cut pieces of your body off. Mm. You've got a real central theme that you're devoted to. That's your life is about expressing that to other people. And when I was just talking to somebody, they were asking me about directing and stuff, and I was saying, I have always liked learning something cool and telling it to somebody else. Like, and it started, this is not a joke. It started when I was about four years old and my father asked me to show the partners in his law firm how to make scrambled eggs. And I went, oh, well, first you take the egg and then and then I'd say, and you crack it on the edge of the thing and, and you drop it in. And say, For me, the to tell somebody that you could crack an egg and let the stuff fall out rather than throw the shells in there. My mouth waters to this day. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. And all of my teaching has been about um, learning how you really do it and what's the best and most fun way to do it. And passing, I like to pass it on because it's so cool, because it's so much fun, because something works like that. And and Mike, for instance, Charlie Wilson's War. Mm-hmm. The scene, the, the scene of the uh, of Phil Hoffman coming in and out of the, the office. He comes in to talk to him and gets thrown out into the waiting room. And comes in to talk to him. And gets <laughs> Such a great scene. Great scene, absolutely. And the actors do exactly. I mean, Hoffman it, it, when he walks back in <laughs> the third time, you know he's going. What are you fucking around like this for? <laughs> Because he was also, he was the same kind of artist. It's artists who, you know, it's like, uh, it's un, we're, we tend to be very autocratic about stuff. And, and quote, if we don't have charm, we tend to be a pain in the ass because some things are necessary 
for the work to work. And and Mike never, never did anything. Yeah, I mean, he might have missed the boat. In, it, he he might have swung for something in a film, which I think in Day of the Dolphin, which didn't come off, and certainly in um, Catch-22, it mm-hmm. didn't quite work. But who knows, maybe if he'd shot it for another year, he'd have solved it. And they were, you know, Catch-22. Buck Henry was working on that, who was also part of the gang. Uh, it was really, and, and nobody could quite solve the film, which is why I think it took him so long to make it. Mm-hmm. He kept hoping he was going to find the answer. And <laughs> he did. Well, they talk about that his, the uh, cinematographer's decision to only shoot during the magic hour. Yeah, so he could only shoot two hours a day. <laughs> like that's an insane, that's an insane way to make a movie that everyone's just sitting around for 22 hours a day, just drinking and, and sleeping around with other people and partying. Oh, and then two hours we make the movie or an hour and a half while the sun is coming up or coming down. Like what an insane, I, like, like I was saying about, you know, his confidence. There's another great bit about that, the, the Virginia Wolf again, where he, he, the first cinematographer, and this is something else too that like I'm amazed that like Nichols comes on the set and he admits to his cinematographer, the second cinematographer that he gets, uh, Haskell Wessler, yeah. who's brilliant, really, like, one of the great geniuses, is that he admitted he did not know how cameras worked because of course he'd only been in the theater to that point. And there's this whole thing where the first time we see Burton and Taylor come in, he wanted the camera to be right in their faces and they pushed the door open and his can his question was like well, isn't the door going to hit the camera? And Wexler had to say, well, no, we'll use a lens that you're going to be further back. And like, oh, okay. That He had that confidence to know the story he wanted to tell and how he wanted to tell it, but was also willing to be open and honest with his collaborators to say, look, I don't know how the lenses work. I explained this to me. And But then there's this great bit where the first cinematographer that Warner Brothers assigned him, when they're having the debate about the shoot it in color, shoot it in black and white, and the guy says... Look, and what we're going to do, Mike, we're going to shoot it in color and we'll print it in black and white. That way, you know, we mollify Warner Brothers, but you get your black and white movie. And Nichols knew that guy was lying to him because he was like, look, if I shoot it in color, Warner's is going to release it in color. And he fired that guy off the movie because he knew that guy was basically a Warner Brothers plant. And I just thought it took from the get go to have that level of just, okay, I understand. I, this is my first movie. I'm working with these legendary figures who are at the peak of their fame, but I know what I'm, and I'm working from an Edward Albee play. Like it's all these amazing elements, but he knew what he was doing from the beginning. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and see what he, what he was doing was the story. That's mm-hmm. what I mean about his ethics was to the story. Mm-hmm. His choice became get to make the film and screw up the story or take the story and go home. And and I, I mean I I just and I see I also when I started working I didn't know anything about camera I literally didn't know anything about camera and lucky me the first cinematographer that I worked with literally took took me by the hand down to where they processed the film in Hollywood and he showed me the film he showed me what happens to it and but what I knew was the following. I never, I never felt like I had to learn camera. Mike knew much more about camera and was much more sophisticated. But what I knew was what I needed to see to tell the story. But also, like I could say to my cinematographer, I, I want 
I could tell him nothing about lenses, nothing about anything. But what I could say to him is, the movie's called First Love, but I don't want it to be for teenagers. Mm-hmm. I want anybody who sits in the audience to either be a teenager or be sitting there remembering what first love was like for them. So the movie has to feel like a memory. And I said, and I don't like yellow. (laughs) And he said to me, I'll pre-flash the film. And I said, okay. And no idea what he was talking about. Yeah. What is that? I don't know what that means. What does pre-flash the film mean? The film, he pre-exposed the film before he shot on it. Okay. That English misty feeling romantic feeling oh wow okay now, okay i knew what i knew was this guy's been making movies for 20 years i don't have to tell him how to do anything but i have to be able to tell him what it is that i want the effect to be and like a, a, a friend of mine at the time was a woman named theone aldridge who won just about every tony for costumes that ever was she, I want, she wanted to do my movie but for long story, she ended up not doing it. But I took her to lunch and said, Theone, uh, as far as costumes are concerned, I want the movie to be a memory. And she immediately said, she was wonderful. She was Greek. She said, well, then, Joan, you don't use red. You don't use yellow. You don't use orange. You use dark purple. You use brown. You use <laughs> green, real green. <laughs> Well, I don't know that, but Theone's the greatest costume who ever lived. All I had to do was know what I wanted it to feel like. Mm-hmm. And, and Mike, I think, was much more educated, or, or probably educated himself much more to film. I, I just managed to seduce all of my... One, I, I sent out a message of respect, which was, you're the cinematographer, you tell me how to do what I want. And mm-hmm. on the other hand, if they either argued with me or couldn't do it. I didn't have any problem changing personnel. I would just say, it's we're not getting what I'm looking for. And I'm, you know, I'm, we'll plan to do something together another time. But, but that's the thing that, that the thing that you were talked about that startled you that he could walk away from his first opportunity with two of the biggest stars in the world. And one of the best scripts to me makes total sense, mm-hmm. total sense because it's hard enough. I mean, you say he made 18 films and two of them didn't work. That's pretty good. That's pretty good batting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing batting average. And again, he was, you know, had such massive success in the theater. And I'm, I'm guessing because he constantly went back and forth, it wasn't like he just did theater, then did films. He was constantly. And then during that eight year break right. where he was just doing, you know, he was just doing uh, theater that of course, if you're directing theater, I would assume, obviously, don't know anything about it, that it has to focus on the character because there are no camera moves in theater. You know, I mean, yeah, there's presentation. There's a way you can present the story in certain visual ways. But still, it's not like you can do something with the editing or do something with the camera. Shot. There's no there's no there's none of that. There's no element. So it's just about how the people in the story are interrelating. And that, of course, is going to then feed into when he's making a movie, he's going to bring all that to whatever movie he's working on. And the and the, the experience is so completely different because films are done in little tiny pieces, not consecutively. Mm-hmm. So you have to know deep in your soul everything about it, like what's the most dramatic scene in a movie, 
Um, and what's the most meaningful that I was talking about right, right, right. is if the actress comes in and it's the third most dramatic and she gives you this great crying performance, but that's what you need for the first most dramatic. You have to say, no, let's save that one for later. We can't do that here because the movie will be over. And we've got all those scenes left to shoot. But what was there was some, oh yeah, I, one of the first stories that I heard about Mike before I really got to know him was he was directing an odd couple and Matha, Walter Matha was just carrying on and Mike told him to do something and he went screaming at, at downstage yelling, give me my balls. And Mike without a breath said, props. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, I guess uh, when you've spent a bunch of time on stage improvising with Elaine May, You've got that, you know, you're able to just pull that out out of nowhere like that. I mean, that's that's fantastic. What I love, excuse me, is what I love about that, which is part of what I, I, why I liked him so much and how I feel close to him is that uh, he knew, he knew going down the path of the laugh as opposed to a a stand up toe to toe fight about how something should be done. The stand up toe to toe -toe fights are a waste of time. It never, never, never will work out. You never have a, you never have a uh, power struggle with an actor. I, I, somebody was writing down, wrote 51 pages of quotes for me teaching. They were in my class for five years. And one of the quotes said, I, uh, I, I never engage in power struggles. I always win. <laughs> and Mike was like that. Mike was, he, he would, and, and it was because we were in service of, Something, something that felt to us so profound. It was such a gift to be able to, to live a life where you told stories and pretended to be other people and mm-hmm. things like that. And I never saw it, but I understand the play that he did in London. He was just acted in was spectacular. That he was yeah, there. yeah. When he acted in a yeah, I, I thought that was such a strange thing for him to do. Yeah. Uh, near the near the end of his life to actually be on stage after you know being a director yeah. for so long, not not doing that. Um, he'd be so educated mourner, right? Designated mourner. Designated mourner. Well, there, yeah, that's right. And yes, that's right. Wallace Shawn. Encyclopedia in the back. Yeah. <laughs> Wallace Shawn that wrote it. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you? Did you get to see any of his plays when he was directing them? God, I'm trying to think. I saw. Early Burley. Hurley Burley, which was He's great. So- <laughs> what else did we see of Mike? The real thing. And the oh, the real thing. Oh is, wow, 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 wow! We saw that in the first week, um, and for Bill and I, we we who was an equal Mike Nichols fan, both of us felt like that was he had absolutely nailed the essence of well how Bill's and my relationship worked. And another couple that we went to see it with thought it was a terrible relationship between the people. And we looked at them and said, are you crazy? And of course, they didn't have anything like the marriage that Bill and I have. Yeah, the real thing was was just spectacular. Absolutely spectacular. I always thought it said something about him and his interpersonal relationships with the fact that he repeated actors so often. I mean, I said he worked with Meryl Streep, starting with Silkwood. He worked with Streep. 
you know, like four or five times. And then, but also in smaller role and then on theater. I mean, he was using a lot of the same people over and over again, like Cynthia Nixon. Like I know she was kind of young coming up. I think when she did Hurley Burley and then it was in other plays of his. And like that says something about, I mean, you know, actors want to work. I know work is work, but at the same time, I, as far as I understand and kind of what you were talking about is that if you, a good director isn't just good at telling the story, it's, creating an atmosphere like you were talking about for people to do their best work and if everything is miserable and brutal and you feel like you're on edge all the time yeah maybe some great art can come from that but it 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 works against it it doesn't work for it and by the fact that he kept using a lot of the same people over and over again and again he talked about he worked with buck henry you know three or four times in a row that this is somebody that people wanted to work with you know this is someone who they know I'm going to be able to be my best self under this guy's tutelage because he's that's what he he's good at that. Not only is he good at telling the story, he's making this a welcome place for an actor to be the, again their their best self. And also, there's a uh, what what Bill and I, my husband and I, refer to as people who are your tribe. The the actors that he wanted to work with had to be his tribe. They they had to be adventuresome. They that's that's why in small roles like seeing Kevin Spacey in Heartburn is so wild. I mean, I almost fell off my chair because I saw it years later. Actually, and went, oh my god, that's Kevin Spacey. Well, who in the world would pick Kevin Spacey? Totally unknown. Uh, Mike saw him. Mike saw what kind of an actor he was, uh, and he like you know he wanted to work with the same people because. And uh, because the understanding was the same. He didn't have to. Sometimes an actor is worth taking on and teaching, but they have to have the while you're working, but they have to have the appetite for the story and the same ethics Mm -hmm. about what we're doing now is the the finest thing that anybody could do. And I don't want to sully it by going ahead and making the picture in color. Mm-hmm. It's just the same as not even making the pictures. No, 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 point, no difference. Uh, no. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, you mentioned the brief scene from Charlie Wilson's war. And as I said, at the top of the show, that is, that was his last film. It was released on uh, December 21st, 2007. Yes. And I'm just going to give a very brief plot synopsis for people who haven't seen it yet. Um, it's, it's based on a true story. Charlie Wilson's war is about a nondescript Texas congressman who takes it upon himself to dramatically increase U.S. funding for the Afghan people currently fighting against the Soviet Union and Pakistan. In partnership with a wealthy Texas socialite, Joanne Herring, and an outspoken CIA operative named Gust Avrakotos, Wilson uses his political acumen to fund the Mujahideen so they can more effectively fight off the Soviet invasion. Wilson learns, however... That what he sees as good deeds can have unintended consequences. Uh, Charlie Wilson is played by Tom Hanks. Joanne Herring is Julia Roberts. Gust Avrakotos is Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, just right there, those three names all together is like that's <laughs> murderer's row of talent. Um, Bonnie Bach, which is uh, Gust, uh, Charlie Wilson's assistant, is played by Amy Adams. There's a congressman re- representative, Doc Long, played by Ned Beatty. And CIA director Henry Cravely is directed, is played by John Slattery. The screenplay by Aaron Sorkin, based on the book by George Creel, and was produced by Tom Hanks. And so right there, just the names that I listed. I mean, that is just every huge name 
right off the top. I mean, he's catching Amy Adams before she was Amy Adams. Like she was wow. on her way up, but still, I mean, yeah, this is her and kind of a smaller partner, John Ned Beatty gets Ned Beatty to do one scene, you know, right. as a, as a congressman. Um, overall, what did you think of that movie? Do you think it was a successful film? Uh, well, there's two questions. <laughs> um, I don't think people got it. Uh, it wasn't as popular as his other stuff. I I really liked it the first time I saw it. The second time I saw it, I was absolutely destroyed by it. I I it I I just was able to go further into what was important, which was the actual history mm-hmm. and the and what I, again that's that step extra step that Mike's take where it's a story of us setting ourselves up to make the world better and then dropping the ball, but. Right. But what happens in, in you see that movie is you, you go one step further. He takes you one step further, which is what you walk away going. This is what America always does. This is, that's what I mean about it being so exciting to me that Silkwood is about a woman waking up that that takes it to one, one more level. And it's that level that Mike's mind worked on that I just wanted to go and live inside his head. Except I was always reading all the biographies of him. I I feel so badly he didn't have a happier life that mm-hmm. he had the, the depression problems and things like that. You know, they and the fact that he was probably the work was the one thing aside from the, his last relationship was the right. One he married thing, to Diane Sawyer. Yeah, so it was the one thing that made him feel good in life. Was that you know that's the thing. There's some quotes from him in the Mark Harris book where he's talking about Charlie Wilson's war where, I mean, that movie's made 2007, right? And we are just on the cusp right there. I mean, like the first, <laughs> the first Marvel comics movie is a year away at that point. We are just on the cusp of IP becoming the dominant force in film, you know, pretty quickly. And. There's a you know, producer, Tom Hanks was the producer on the film and, you know, he brought Nichols in and there again, there were quotes from Nichols where he was saying he felt like he wasn't fully in charge of the film because again, he had this big star as the producer and they had some, they butted heads a little bit about how to end the story and things like that. But it's, you know, this is an adult, adult drama with, so you have to have some knowledge of history, American history based on a book and it's it's like if if Nichols had lived, to, you know, if he was still around today and he was still directing, like I can't imagine him directing the kind of movies he wanted to make would not be released in this marketplace. You know, they just wouldn't. And it's like he, I feel like he got his lit. Now he continued to do plays for a bunch of years until they said until he passed away, and he didn't necessarily intend Charlie Wilson's War to be his last film. I think he kind of knew, like, well, all right, I, there was other projects he was maybe circling and then he did, none of them ever came together and then they think at some point he must have realized okay wilson's war is going to be it but it's like i can't imagine what kind of movies he would get made nowadays because they're all character pieces yeah some of them are based on books but there's no you know like they're just all the stuff that is out today is sort of antithetical to everything that he was sort of about in terms of what he wanted his movies to be about yeah it's one thing that i think of um is that that he and I shared an absolute love of, which is irony. Hmm. And when you started talking about that, I thought what happened yesterday 
the whole Ukraine thing, he could have made a great movie about <laughs> that. That you know. However, what you're talking about is where's the place for that movie in mm-hmm. this? And I think you're absolutely right. I think my husband and I haven't been in a movie theater since COVID began. Mm. Avid movie goers. We went two or three times a week and out to dinner and uh, well, we have a 63 inch TV and some lounge chairs. That's what's so heartbreaking about making a movie now is the small movies are all going to go into the streaming services. Yep. There yep. won't be a single small movie in a, in a large movie house again. Um, and I don't know how long the fad will last. When when will people get tired of what um, uh, what we call ringmaster movies? You know, the big, big, gigantic things like that. Mm-hmm. And then with what you refer to AI, just gives me the creeps because yeah. the, it's hard enough. We're teaching a lot in the college level. It's hard enough to wake up the students, and it gets harder and harder. Because they come in having learned to be good students, not having learned to be artists. And you think about Mike and Elaine came out of Chicago, University of Chicago. You know, there were a bunch of rebels around uh, in the 60s where, where all of us were really born and grew up. The, the, that, that was the time, that was the, the last time that the country was, had a, had a whole ethic that everybody could get upset about. Uh, I agree with you. I think he, I'll tell you a funny story. I think it's funny. Norm, this is true. Norman Lear, you know, of Norman Lear fame. Of course. Yes. And Larry Gelbart, who created Nash. Oh, yeah. They, <laughs> they were in latter, their latter years, they decided to take the guy who created Everybody Loves Raymond to lunch and ask him what the business was like. Okay. And, right. So they take him to lunch and they listen to him and he talks. And at the end of it, Larry Gelbert turns to Norman and says, Norman, we're dying just in time. (laughs) And Rob, I feel like we're dying just in time. (laughs) You know, because, you know, you talk about things that, you know, that are kind of dazzling, the kind of special effects and things like that. Frank Oz, the director and the voice of Miss Piggy, sure. uh, directed uh, uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Right. And his movie was the last movie that was done by live people, all the special effects. He had hmm. 68 people under the floor for that last big scene, make, doing all the arms and things. And I feel like you can feel the difference between that and something that's CGI arms coming out of the floor uh so and bill and i look at each other a lot of times and say bill we're dying just in time i mean you know it's like i like that stuff i like big spectacle movies i grew up on comic books and so i love all that stuff when it's well done but it is unfortunate when again when i was reviewing nichols's career and like the ones that like i hadn't seen like i hadn't seen angels in america i hadn't seen wit the two things he did for hbo and you know, I'm watching these and like, you know, Wit is a tough watch because it's about Emma Thompson uh, d- dying of cancer and d- facing that and dealing with the, the modern medical uh, profession and, and how we treat people and how we care for them when they're when they're in that position. And then Angels in America, again, this sprawling, 
you know, piece that takes, of course, many years and based on the, the play, of course, the both plays by Tony Kushner. Um, you know, he's like, I'm glad these exist and I'm glad that HBO at the time was a home for these things. Right. But it's a shame that it's like, you know, it's like the the movies used to be about these things, you know, (laughs) they used to be about these things, not just people that could, you know, pierce the time barrier. You know, I mean, I like those movies too, but I also like it to be real people. When I was a kid, you, you've mentioned Silkwood several times. Silkwood was not a movie I saw in the theater because I was like 12 when it came out, but it, played on cable incessantly and i watched it probably half a dozen times and i think about that and i go what was there for a 12 year old to latch on to right right why am i watching this movie so karen silkwood and she's in this you know kind of try relationship with kurt russell and Cher. and i'm thinking well it's because it was people you know it's people interrelating and at 12 years old i was open to that and again as much as i love other stuff I love Ghostbusters. I love Star Wars. I also just love the idea of people interrelating. And they said at 12, I'm like, wow, I love this movie, this Silkwood movie. And that's, you know, that's what Nichols is bringing to it is this sense of these are real people going through a real story and going through all of his filmography, even the ones that you talk about that don't really work. They all have that. They all have that on some level. Now there's one or two that really don't work. He did this ghastly comedy with gary shanley called what planet are you from which is just by far his worst film and it was apparently according to mark harris terrible experience and everything and it's because that film doesn't work because those people aren't really real they're cartoons and it just feels like wow this doesn't even feel like a mike nichols movie right uh, because the characters in here are so cartoonish ironically the only person in that movie that does seem real is annette benning and she's really oh. bringing something to it. And everyone else is such a cartoon that you're like, ah, oh, this just doesn't, doesn't work. But you can almost see that like Nichols is bringing that part. He's doing his best to crowbar some reality into that story <laughs> through Annette Benning's really good performance. But that's again, even the movies where he's talking about Day in the Dolphin, where it's this thriller involving dolphins with bombs strapped to their heads to blow up to kill the president and all these things. He's, you know, it's still George C. Scott right. caring about these dolphins. And that's, the through line through all of his films, again, yeah. even the unsuccessful ones. And that was, that was amazing to get to see crammed together when I was like, sort of rewatching a bunch of his films and then catching the ones I hadn't seen. Right. Um, it was marvelous to see all that together. And so I envy you being able to see some of his plays. I would now that oh, I've yeah. immersed myself in Nichols so much, I would, I would kill myself to see one, at least one of those. Oh yeah. Oh God. Well, he just, and the plays, you know, we could both, he and I both came from theater. That's why I wanted to be a Shakespearean actress. And, <laughs> uh, and I got a, quite a good deal of work when I got to New York doing it. I was at, I had a lead at this, at the Stratford American Shakespeare Festival when it was big time and all that. But, you know, wanting to be an actress and make a living doing Shakespeare was about as smart as wanting to be a blacksmith in New York. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but, uh, yeah, it's just uh, I don't know. I can't imagine what what will pass for entertainment n- next. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I've been thinking that if he was still around, he would be directing some very, very. It probably would still be just doing theater, but probably directing some show for streaming that you know was never going to make it as a movie. But right. he could bring all of his wit and all of his depth yeah. to it and things like that. Um, yeah, I you think know. you're right. Yeah, I mean, it would that would make a lot of sense. Angel in America is 
it's one piece, but it's broken up into episodes and it works. You know, it works as fine. It's got a big, each chapter has a beginning, a middle and end, and then it moves on to the, the, the next thing. I mean, do you think it's because part of the reason he works with actors so well is because of course he, he had been one. He had had some experience of dealing with being a performer and he has some understanding of, of what they're going through because he did it himself. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And also, uh, I think being a professional in the improvisational theater teaches actors something that they don't get anywhere else. And look at the ones like Gene Hackman was in the show that I was doing improv theater. Dusty did improv. Uh, the, some of the best actors started in the improvisational theater, Alan Arkin. So there's something you learn about, um, an inner freedom. Uh, as an actor, when you improvise well, mm-hmm. when you're not, you're simply not judging what's going to come next because you don't know what's going to come next. It's, you know, like being, it's like the shortstop of the actors, you know, give me the ball, give me the ball. Do I throw it to third, first, home, where? And no time to think. The only place you get that practice is an improvisational theater. I, like I said, I admired, uh, you know, through, through, through his films and then through Mark Harris's book again. And I read another book on Nichols called the uh, life is not everything, which is a right. bunch of reminisces of people talking about working with him throughout his yeah. career. And, you know, this is a guy we mentioned earlier that he suffered from great depression, you know, serious bouts of depression and worry. Yeah. And yet he was constantly willing to kind of put himself out on the line for people to judge, whether it's a play or a movie of like, again, I, I can't imagine suffering from that level of, insecurity and depression and then then willing to being to say here's this thing i created everybody judge it and putting yourself through that over and over again well i think that people like mike of course they 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 want things to succeed but it's the process of making it that's really what turns them on that's what that you know i'm no matter how i'm sure no matter how depressed he was if he was working and he walked onto the set to solve something, he felt better. So it's almost even less about the the the, the end result because there's so much of that you can't control, and it's yeah. more like, hey, that was a we I created this great thing and we had a great time making it, and that's satisfying enough. What Absolutely. the business end of it, I don't I don't even have to really concern myself about. Well, you know that, that that's the center of my beliefs. And like for instance, uh, Stanley Kubrick said, "Never be ashamed to show your work." There's always some dumb bastard who'll like it. <laughs> For me, I, I try to. T- For me, I'm the one that has to like it. I'm the one that has to like it. Um, I, it's much more fun if a lot of other people like it too. But it's uh, what I've, I said this at Sundance once <laughs> at a conclusion of a big meeting, and I thought they were going to jump up and kill me <laughs> because what I said was, "Look, nobody really remembers who won uh, Best Actor five years ago, and film, real film." disintegrates everything Mm -hmm. passes away the only thing that lasts in your life is the quality of the experience that you have doing it and the quality of the experience that you bring the people who are working with you it's the quality of the experience of this of of that's the only thing that lasts and i said and then i went on and said with great enthusiasm and none of it means anything <laughs> I watched Michelle Satter from Sundance when I said that because they always counted on me for the rah rah speech <laughs> on the first day. 
And that's, I got all wound up and meant it. And none of it means anything. The only thing, the only thing that means anything is the fun that you and I have discovered each other. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, again, that's, that's a, I mean, that's actually a perfect place to kind of wrap this up because, you know, the fun I have from this show that I do is two, two things. One, when I ask a guest, who do they want to talk about? And if yeah. it's someone like you mentioned, Mike Nichols, that I have to go and learn about, that is, that is so much fun for me because we are, we're inundated with choices. You know, I have like 17 streaming services that I pay for plus like five more that are free. And when I've, when I met with so many choices, I kind of revert to just something easy that I know I'll like because I just, I, 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 my brain can't comprehend having this many choices. You know what I mean? So I'll like, Oh, I'll just watch Jaws again. Not that Jaws isn't a masterpiece, but I've seen it a thousand times. Me too. When I, but when I have to watch Mike Nichols movies, I'm like, okay, well now I have to do this for the show. And I'm yeah. now going to watch Day of the Dolphin. I'm going to watch Catch 22. I'm going to watch, uh, you know, the birdcage again. And that's not something I would normally do, but I have to for the show. And therefore I'm getting this wonderful experience. I'm the choice is being made for me, which is fantastic. Yeah. And then, so that's the one half of it. And then the other half is, Having these conversations is getting to have somebody on and talking about this. And that is the fun I get out of it. And hopefully, as you say, people like it and they respond to it once it's out. But I can't control that. You know, it's all about the fun I'm having in the moment, getting who getting whoever I'm talking to. And so that's the fun of this. And so this is another one of those. Like, this is just so much fun talking to you about Mike Nichols, Joan. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. Well, Thank you for doing this. Again, we could go on and on and on about Mike Nichols, but uh, it is just such an amazing honor to get to talk to you and to correspond with you. It's just, it's just really one of the delights of my life. And uh, I, the, the idea I had a year ago to, to reach out to you was just like, I had this idea and I was like, that's crazy. She's not going to write back. That's nuts. She's busy doing things. And then I, you know, wrote you and then you wrote back. And then, you know, within like a day later, we had already recorded our mash segment together. And it's just, it remains one of my favorite things that oh, I've ever gotten to do as a podcaster. And it's just such an honor to, to have you on my shows at all. So thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, it's a, it's a real pleasure and it's so much fun for me. It's so much fun for me because the questions you ask me, I, I have to really, I have to surprise myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That's great. It makes me feel fantastic. So, well, uh, thank you all for listening to Fade Out. Go check out the movies of Mike Nichols. A lot of them are available on streaming. Uh, others are available on Blu-ray. I own Day of the Dolphin on Blu-ray now. That's the thing. That's the, uh, <laughs> the sacrifices I make for this show. I, I'm happy to have it on my shelf now. Of course, you can find all the back episodes of Fade Out on our uh, website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. We're always talking movies on Twitter at Fade Out Pod. And if you want to support the Find Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash FW Podcast. And there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be named checked on the show of your choice. So big thanks to Monique D for her support of Fade Out. I really appreciate it. So again, thanks everybody for listening. Go check out the work of Mike Nichols, the films. Uh, the, the book, the Mark Harris book is just absolutely an amazing read. So go check it out, everybody. And so that's going to do it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another fade out before you know it. But until then, we've reached the end of this particular script. So it's time to fade out. The distinguished gentlemen who have been nominated for best achievement in directing are Arthur Penn for Bonnie and Clyde, Mike Nichols for The Graduate, Stanley Kramer for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, 
Richard Brooks for In Cold Blood, and Norman Jewison for In the Heat of the Night. And now the winner. The winner is Mike Nichols. Until this moment, my greatest pleasure in The Graduate was making it because it's a picture made by a group and we cared for each other and we cared for what we were doing. So this award quite literally belongs to them at least as much as it does to me. I'm grateful to them and to the Academy and to the movies themselves and I'd also like to wish my mother a happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs>